Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, the host of your channel. And today we have with us Rebecca Hansen and Patricia Richards, authors of the book, of the wonderful book, Harassed, Gender, Bodies, and Ethnographic Research, published by University of California Press in 2019. Um, Rebecca Hansen is assistant professor in the Center of Latin American Studies and the Department of Sociology and Criminology and Law at the University of Florida. Patricia Richards is Professor of Sociology and Women's Studies at the University of Georgia. Uh, Rebecca and Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, I mean, I'm so thrilled to um, have you here, especially because uh, Harassed was one of my favorite books uh, in recent times. I think probably my favorite book that I that I read last year. So yay. Oh, <laughs> amazing. That is so um, great to hear. Yeah. So uh, I was hoping that we could start off with uh, you just telling us a little bit about yourselves, perhaps how you became sociologists. Um, yeah, sure. I guess um, I can get us started off. Um, so I would say probably, and I think this is true for um, maybe a lot of people, it was really just uh, an amazing professor that I had. Um, and when I was doing my undergraduate um, at a really small public liberal arts school in Alabama. Um, and I felt like the classes that I had with him just really helped me to understand things that I was experiencing through the, you know, the sociological imagination um, and just kind of really taught me how to situate this person, these personal issues within broader social dynamics and inequalities and provided me with a vocabulary for understanding things that I just think I didn't have before. Um, and then we also read a lot of ethnographies in his class. Um, and I was, I remember being just like immediately drawn to those. So um, once I was aware of graduate, graduate school being a thing, um, I, with those two things combined, I kind of just knew that's where I was going to head after finishing um, my undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think kind of similarly to Rebecca, I, um, I, I, well, I actually started my undergrad thinking that I would major in English and anthropology. And I was at the University of Wisconsin, and as a freshman, uh, classes, you know, it was notoriously difficult to get into the classes you wanted to take. And so the first anthropology class I was able to take uh, ended up being an archaeology one, and it just did not resonate with me. I didn't like the class at all, but I simultaneously had gotten into an honors intro to sociology, and it completely resonated with me. I felt like it really, you know, I was like, this is how I see the world. And that kind of sealed the deal for me. And, um, and my experience at the University of Wisconsin and, you know, with a range of different professors really convinced me that that's what I wanted to do um, as a profession. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, thank you for that. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of our listeners. Um, now, uh, before we get into the details of the book, uh, 
I was hoping that you could share with us how this project unfolded, how it all began, and how you made the difficult decision, I guess, of co-authoring this. Yeah, I think that's a really fantastic question because it, I mean, the kind of the origin story of the book, I suppose, really situates uh, the entire, I guess, the argument that we put forward. Um, It's a very nice segue into kind of understanding what we are attempting to do with the book. So um, the idea for the book actually came out of my dissertation research, um, which is uh, a completely different project um, on uh, policing in Venezuela. so when I was conducting my research in Venezuela, uh, it was a two-year ethnography, and I was just being uh, very consistently harassed by uh, not just the police officers that I was working with, but a lot of the other men um, in state institutions that I was navigating. And it never really uh, occurred to me to talk to anyone about that harassment. It just seemed like uh, something that was like I was handling really poorly. I didn't know what to do about and was kind of, you know, ashamed of. And actually the first time that I brought it up to uh, one of, to a professor, I kind of just like brought it up as a joke, like, Oh, listen to this like weird thing that's happened to me. Um, but at some point, um, Patricia and I, I think it was probably six or eight months, maybe into my research, uh, Patricia and I had a conversation about what was going on. And she was like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. We have to talk about this, um, which I think is probably an appropriate response. And that conversation kind of led to a conversation of why didn't this come up as a discussion in you know, um, uh, meetings with my committee, which Patricia was on at the time, or in methods classes, like why was this something that I was not prepared? To? And I, of course, had read um, ethnographies of women who had worked with the police, and they mentioned issues of sexual harassment, but didn't really get into much. Um, it was kind of just like a side note in the way that sexual harassment is oftentimes talked about. So it really came out of this conversation that Patricia and I had of um, why something that seemed so obvious once we started talking about it had been so... Um, shrouded in silence, I think, especially since Patricia, which she, uh, she can talk about more, uh, yeah, had also experienced sexual harassment in her research before. And so. Right. Yeah. I think that that conversation that we had, um, you know, I was like, gosh, it, you know, this is really interesting. First of all, we have to figure out some different strategies uh, for you to get through your field work. But, uh, but it also, our conversation really made me think about my own experiences with harassment in the field and the ways in which I had just kind of set them aside as unrelated to the work I was doing. Uh, in order to get through them. And just sort of the fact that Becca was having these experiences in the field and yet persevering through her field work. And I had these experiences, but really set them aside, but actually altered the course of my field work without reflecting on it very much. You know, I, I think I said at that point, you know, we really need to write about this. And that, you know, from there, you know, at first I think we thought that we would just write about our experiences with them. We said, well, let's do a few other interviews, but then it, then it just, the process project just grew and grew from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can imagine uh, a lot of women ethnographers or at least uh, gender minority ethnographers wanting to share their experiences once they came to know that you were doing this research. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, was not, uh, it was actually really difficult um, not being able to interview all of the people that, that contacted us from the call for participants. Um, uh, I, I mean, and I think this is... Um, 
contributed to what Patricia was talking about in terms of us moving from just an article or a few articles to the book is that whenever we presented the project at a conference or talked to women about it, there was just such a uh, resounding like response and excitement and um, encouragement. I mean, I really think that that encouragement is what really motivated us to, to write the book. So um, I really appreciate all of that. Um, yeah, early motivation uh, in the first few, I guess, years of this project. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think this is a good point then to get into the book. And um, I would like to start with the first chapter itself, where uh, you identify three qualities or concepts that are often associated with what is known as good ethnographic work, at least in sociology. Um, And these, you note, are solitude, danger, and intimacy. Um, Could you say a little bit more about uh, why these are gendered concepts and how this, uh, these characterizations of good ethnographic work impact knowledge production in the discipline? Yeah, definitely. So just briefly, uh, so that listeners know what we're referring to by these concepts, uh, when we when we um, say solitude, we're referring to the value that's placed on going into the field and withstanding the difficulties of conducting ethnographic research on your own, as if that makes that's what makes you a good qualitative scholar. Uh, danger is, you know, a related concept and refers to the belief that a worthwhile that worthwhile ethnographic research really requires facing hazards in the field and doing uh, anything for the data. And then intimacy um, is, which is frequently um, held up as sort of the approach that creates the best ac- or the access to the best data refers to the idea of becoming as close as possible to research participants uh, by spending as much time as possible with them. So our our participants talked about the many ways that they were disciplined into these standards. Uh, The standards were reinforced in their coursework. Um, They were reinforced in the ways in which they were mentored or not mentored. And they were reinforced by the ethnographies that were held up as the exemplars in the field. Um, and so as a result, we call solitude, danger, and, um, and intimacy the three fixations. Now, how, how are these gendered? Um, the three fixations are really based on the ideal of a disembodied, homogenized, quote-unquote, neutral researcher. Um, and this idea is, of course, rooted in the dualisms um, that are at the core of Western intellectual culture, privileging mind over body and reason over emotion. But in reality, there's no neutral researcher, but rather an ethnographic theory and practice that's rooted in the experiences of elite white men. Um, and as a result, when women and ethnic and racial minorities and, and um, sexual minorities go into the field and have experiences of harassment, this ideal, um, you know, based on elite white men's experiences has a silencing effect on them uh, when they experience this unwanted sexual contact. And it, and it really discourages them from evaluating the systemic character of their experiences. Yeah, and I, w- I would just add on there. I mean, I think we can look at, you know, what types of violence are valorized within um, ethnographic narratives and academia. Uh, what what kind of violence gets 
celebrated or receives like this academic credibility. And it's very much so um, this kind of like physical violence is associated with masculinity. Um, it's very hard to think of accounts where women have talked about confronting sexual assault or violence in the field. They have received like the the same academic accolades that men receive for talking about this, right? So um, it's just thinking about the type of violence that's celebrated within academia and within ethnographic writing, I think, uh, is points to the, the gender dynamic. Right. And I, I would also say here that the three fixations also contradict what many women are told to do to keep themselves safe in their everyday lives. So in other words, they ask researchers to do precisely those things that women are shamed for doing after they experience uh, sexualized or, or racialized violence in their everyday lives. So there's a real contradiction in messaging there. Um, but in addition, you know, you asked in your question about the impacts um, of these standards on the production of knowledge. And Becca and I talk about a few um, a few of these in the book. And the first is that interactions that bring sex, gender, race, and the body to the fore often become residual data or end up being ignored altogether. And, um, you know, what we mean by this is that many of our participants were absolutely blindsided by their experiences with harassment while they were in the field. And as a, as a result, much like I did in, in my own experiences, they tended to, they tried to ignore them or set them aside. So we use Joan Fujimura's concept um, or term for the data that scientists misrecognize or set aside because they don't fit with their pre-established categories of analysis. Uh, and call them, so her term for this is awkward surplus. So that's the term that we use in the book as well to talk about the data that's just set aside. Um, and, and, you know, in addition, as sort of a corollary, a corollary of the setting aside of data, part of what that means is that um, despite sort of a growing emphasis within ethnography on reflexivity and positionality, um, the ongoing influence of the three fixations really leads to a superficial attention to embodiment in the field and, and thus really limits the ways in which we envision gathering good data. Mm-hmm. Well, this is actually a great uh, segue into my next question, which was about, which is about how does one go about writing with the body or what does embodied ethnography in its truest sense mean, uh, at least in what you have gathered from your uh, Uh, interviews with your participants? Yeah, I think this is a great question uh, to think about, like, concretely, how do we go about um, changing uh, the, these, these fixations that we talk about in the book. So um, we talk about embodied ethnography in a couple of different ways in the book, but uh, I think we could probably summarize it as um, kind of a practice of reflecting on how one's research process is structured by the meanings that are attached to our bodies and our identities and self-presentation in our field sites and the implications that all of these means have for the knowledge that we produce. And in order to really interrogate and to really understand that, um, we have to bring our bodies both into the analysis and into our data and thinking about how we collect it, right? So it's uh, kind of just a call to really examine those experiences, less so at the individual level, because we're less focused on researchers kind of writing their subjectivities into their research, which we think there's obviously a place for, but is 
less our, our call, what we're more concerned with is using these embodied experiences uh, to address the question of how these like subject positionings affect our knowledge construction, right? So and what that can tell us about power dynamics within our field site, which as Patricia was talking about, it, because these experiences get pushed aside into the awkward surplus, right? We have all of this really rich data that actually tells us a lot about what's going on in our field that we don't analyze and that we don't use because it's not ta- it's not recognized as important data, right? Um, and I think so. Of course, like we're not the first ones to be writing about embodied ethnography, right? There's a lot of um, uh, as we say in the book, it seems like embodiment is kind of like having its heyday in um, in academia right now. So. Um, but I do think it's important to kind of differentiate, I think, what our motivation is and what we're thinking about with the book from some other perspectives, kind of thinking about carnal um, ethnography or experiential methods in that, uh, in contrast to some of this other scholarship, uh, which tends to kind of place the emphasis on the researcher's body as this tool that, you know, we use to insert ourselves into the worlds of others to get really intimate with our subjects, right? So um, some of the writing in this area talks about, you know, how we can follow our participants and engage in the activities that they engage in and thus have a better understanding of their social worlds, right? So like really using the body to get to dig into uh, the social worlds of our participants, which is, of course, important, but that scholarship tends to ignore or not different differentiate very well among the different challenges and forms of violence uh, that researchers encounter when they do this type of thing, right? Precisely due to their particular embodiment. And that is more so kind of the focus of our book. Um, I think it's, it's also important to, uh, which is something we mentioned, the conclusion is important to recognize is that we don't think that embodied ethnography is like, you know, is the solution to the problems that we point out in uh, in the book in terms of um, teaching methods and evaluating ethnographies and such. So we think it's one way that can be, it's one approach that can be, uh, that, you know, can be used alongside something like the mindful ethics that Gloria Gonzalez Lopez writes about and Vincent Shapiro write about uh, or Ajpong's invading ethnography. So we think like kind of thinking about all of this together with a lot of the really wonderful research that has come out um, from feminist, queer, and intersectional theory, of course. So, um, yeah, and so hopefully, what we're we're doing is is contributing to an ongoing conversation about how to write ethnography in a more honest and transparent way. And so, one of the ways that we think about doing this in the book, and that we have navigated this question, which I think is something that we're both still thinking a lot about, right? I mean, specifically because there's so there's. Uh, we've both been socialized and trained into writing our bodies out of um, our work, right? It's really hard to think about how to undo that and how to think about how to write um, differently. So one of the things that we do in the book is present um, an, an ethnographic vignette from my dissertation uh, at the end of one of the chapters where I had basically removed all of the information uh, having to do with um, kind of this uh, sexualized uh, experiences that I was having with a certain, with a police officer, uh, the way that made me feel while I was in the field, um, things like this. So we present that vignette and then below that a vignette where I've added all of that information back in. And you can really just see, um, you know, how much, uh, I think how much more we learn about um, what's going on in the, in the, in my field site, uh, when that's included. Right. And I think, you know, we do this all of the time in ethnographic writing, we push, um, students and, uh, you know, our, our 
peers to talk about what it feels like to be in the moment in the you know in the field what 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 is that experience like and obviously the a very important part of that experience for a lot of women is our awkward interactions um, and having to navigate uh, sexual harassment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I must say that the book is a joy to teach with because I actually used the juxtaposition of your field notes um, to demonstrate to some of my undergrads how to write uh, thinking with the body. And it was much more graspable for them to actually see such an example um, at play instead of me, you know, speaking about these theoretical constructs like embodied ethnography. So I, I really appreciate how um, how useful this book is to teach with. Um, so thanks for writing it in uh, in such an accessible manner. Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. And I, I mean, I think it's important also to, um, uh, we had a lot of really wonderful support from University of California Press from the editorial team that we worked with. And they, the, the people on that editorial team that actually kind of pushed us to think about these things in a more concrete way which I think was really useful. It was, it's hard to think about how to, because as we mentioned in the book, we don't want to provide, you know, guide, strict guidelines or regulations, but they really, um, by pushing us to think more concretely about these things, that was, I think, one of the outcomes of that. Right. Um, which is, as, as you're saying, I think is really helpful for teaching. Right. That was sort of um, why we really integrated the questions for reflection throughout the book. And and also there's, uh, you know, at the end of one of the chapters, we also include kind of a list of questions that you might ask yourself about experiences you had in the field and, and it, sort of questions as you're writing up your field notes to think about Um, that maybe will help you uh, get at some of these embodied components. Like, you know, for example, was there anything about my experience in the field today that made me uncomfortable? You know, why did it make me uncomfortable? Um, You know, something as simple as that can really elicit um, some of the things that we're talking about to get us to think about how our own embodied experiences might reflect something about the social realities that we're studying. Yeah, and I I mean, this is actually something that I'm still working through, um, and Patricia and I still talk about, uh, because I'm working on my book manuscript from the dissertation that um, I was uh, doing research for, and so I'm trying, you know, working on this practice of writing in an, in, in an embodied way, uh, which is, can be very difficult to navigate sometimes. And, and is, honestly, it can be sometimes kind of frightening, right? Because you go back over what you've written and think like, oh my goodness, how is this going to be received, of course, right? <laughs> um, but and so it's definitely, it's a, um, it does require, I think, a lot of reflection and uh, questioning what we've learned about writing ethnography to, to write in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, thanks uh, for that. I mean, I was just thinking about the several moments um, post field work that I uh, was looking over my field notes and was honestly surprised that such an interaction even happened. Like a part of my mm-hmm. brain just like, you know, repressed um, some of these moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and when yeah. I read it and I see like this big star being like, avoid this person. And I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was awful. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think I, it's, it's like precisely what Patricia was talking about. I think it, earlier on is that like we make these decisions in the field, right. To avoid someone or avoid a certain space without reflecting on it because we, yeah, you're just like, I'm going to put this aside. I have to get my field work done. I need to get my data. Um, mm-hmm. And then, then later on you, yeah, surprise yourself by reading about the things that you ended up doing. Yeah. 
And, you know, on that note, um, chapter three was really helpful for me to think about my own research and how it had been shaped via either real or imminent sexual harassment. And um, I felt like you showed very sensitively how ethnographers either tend to A, abandon the project, B, modify it, or C, suffer through it, uh, um, as you so rightfully put it, um, uh, or rightly put it, sorry. But I was uh, curious to know more about how the disciplinary expectations about research affect, uh, I guess, the choice that ethnographers make and uh, the emotions that those choices engender. Uh, I know that there's a lot of guilt and uh, shame that ethnographers carry in either writing about it or not writing about uh, certain things. And uh, maybe if you could help us understand how this varies between gender, sexuality, and also a, the stage of one's career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this this was a really interesting uh, finding that came out of our interview data were these different strategies that uh, that women used in navigating sexualization and sexual harassment. I was personally surprised at the number of women who who did abandon their projects. I mean, I'm, I'm at the time I was just amazed at their strength to be able to do that because I was terrified of doing that with my own research. So it was really um, actually wonderful to hear stories of women who were prioritizing their, uh, their safety over getting this data. So um, Becca, can I just say like, also like also some of the men we interviewed. So the men that we interviewed were a minority of the subjects, but also some of the men we interviewed abandoned their subjects as well, which really like points out that these embodied experiences are, you know, they're, gendered and harassment is experienced mostly by women in the field or or yet more often by women in the field perhaps but but it's you know important our, i think our message is important for all ethnographers regardless of gender mm-hmm. but yeah absolutely sorry for interrupting no i think that's really important yeah um in thinking about uh the, the narratives that men use also to kind of justify why they abandon their projects in a way that makes sense with these, with the ethnographic fixations we talk yeah. about, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we were really intentional about recruiting a diverse sample of researchers for the, for the project. Um, so it's, I mean, our interviews and analysis don't really, I think allow us maybe to identify some of these really, really interesting patterns. I think that you're, um, uh, kind of teasing out here. So in other words, like how one's social location and identities interact with ethnographic fixations to make one option maybe more possible and more attractive. Um, so we were, you know, in this process, like I said, we were, we found these, these strategies and we're really interested in documenting the strategies that researchers were using in the field, um, but we didn't really systematically analyze why some people chose one strategy over another. But I think that that would be a fantastic research project that I would I would either love to do in the future. I hope that someone else um, does in the future. I think it's a really fantastic uh, question and really important. Um, but we did talk a lot, you know, to our participants about um, what seemed to them to be unique challenges uh, that they faced due to their embodiment or identities. Um, and then kind of the way they made connections, I suppose, between uh, those challenges and what other researchers went through maybe. So for example, we, had a really wonderful interview with a, a trans researcher that um, we were I, that we were interviewing about difficulties of doing international research because he travels with syringes and injectable med- medication, some of which is considered a controlled substance depending on the country that you're traveling in. Um, but he noted as he was like kind of thinking about this um, 
interview that this is a challenge that other researchers with medical issues also face as well, right? Uh, and this is absolutely a consideration for researchers when weighing the viability of a project. And I think these kinds of things that we don't really talk about because they're based in thinking about our, our bodies in the field kind of pile up throughout a project maybe um, and can maybe push us to abandon, um, but can maybe, um, yeah, put, I suppose make abandoning the project a more attractive option because we're just so not prepared to deal with a lot of those, with a lot of those issues, I think. Um, it but probably, I think, also has a lot to do with the kind of support that you receive from your committee, right? Um, yeah. So it, I think it's important to situate these responses that pe- that women had in the field within academia as well. Um, so we talk about one researcher, Michelle, in the book, who uh, was attacked um, by a foreign expat who uh, she was trying to kind of build a connection with. Um, and she spent three days in her hotel room to kind of just like really um, battling with herself about whether or not to tell her advisor about it. And what she did, he was like, oh my gosh, you have to get out of there. He was very, very supportive, right? But depending on the kind of response that you get to, to those um, admissions, I suppose, or right, being honest with your committee, I think probably has a lot to do with, uh, which is precisely one of the reasons why we make this call for uh, transforming academia, because right. this isn't just about the decisions that women make in the field. It's um, about the kind of support they receive from their mentors, right? Right. So, um, right. And, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was I was just going to add there that, uh, that, you know, some of our participants had a lot of support when they finally decided to tell their committee members or advisors about about this, about their experiences in the field. Um, but others did not. You know, other participants were told, well, that's just part of field work. You just have to suck it up. And that sort of attitude is exactly what people are fearing in the field when they are reluctant to talk about these experiences. And so, um, and so, yeah, just as Becca was saying, the you know, I think that here on this question of abandoning or um, altering or suffering through. Um, you know, this also really comes down to the importance of making it normal to talk about sexualized experiences and experiences with harassment as part of fieldwork, that that has to be a part of the training. And it really needs to be made explicit that, um, that um, young ethnographers should have support networks and feel supported by their by their committees and mentors such that they come to them when they are having these sorts of experiences in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if I may just uh, follow up on that, uh, I often also worried, I guess, uh, when I was writing about either villainizing my informants or making, you know, already marginalized uh, mm. uh sections of society appear um, aggressive or sexually aggressive, you know, and like I was often worried about stereotyping um, and I was wondering how one goes about dealing with that kind of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of our participants talked about that as feeding into their reluctance to talk about their experiences in the field to be sure um, and and actually, concern over that issue also entered into our sampling procedures in deciding, uh, you know, who we talked to. We, Becca and I really wanted to make sure that um, we were drawing on um, 
participants who did their research in the global north as well as in the global south in order to kind of avoid falling into that stereotype that this is something, you know, that just happens to sort of naive researchers, women researchers going into the global south where, of course, these men are going to harass them. You know, we didn't want to feed into that stereotype because, of course, we have, you know, people in our sample who did research, you know, with um, elite scientists who were harassed. You know, we have people in our sample who did research, you know, in the man camps in um in North and South Dakota who were harassed. And so harassment happens in all in all sectors. But at the same time, that sort of concern about reinforcing a colonialist gaze um, or a racist gaze was really um, a part of the consideration of many of our participants who, you know, didn't want to add into, into that dynamic. Um, there's a really great article by a group of anthropologists on this issue as well. Um, that um, Becca, do you remember? It's by Maya Berry and her colleagues, and I think yeah, it's, it's Current Anthropology. It's yeah. The name of the article is Towards a Fugitive Anthropology, I believe. Yeah, yeah. and it's you know it's written by a group of anthropologists, all of whom are women of color, and all of whom are involved in what they call, or, you know, in what anthropologists call activist anthropology. And, and basically, you know, they talk about how their commitments as activist anthropologists really, you know, got, it ended up um, contributing to their own, um, you know, subjugation and, and like their, their own vulnerability to harassment, racialized and gender harassment and sexual violence in the field. Yeah, I think, oh, sorry. I was just going to add that. um, I think that this is a really interesting question to think about in terms of if you're, if you are uh, coming from an activist or a feminist approach, because particularly with the feminist approach, it kind of puts you in a bind in some ways, right? Because, um, you're even more aware, hopefully, right, of reproducing these stereotypes or marginalizing people through your narratives. Um, so you're more aware of it, which makes it much harder for you to talk uh, about potentially, right? Um, so it's an, it, there's an interesting contradiction there, I think, for uh, for women doing research coming from uh, particular theoretical um, frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just making a note of the fugitive anthropology mm-hmm. piece too. I mean, I do have like a bunch of uh, uh, ticks on on your own bibliography to go back and read <laughs> later. So. That's great. <laughs> yeah, um, so, you know, I'm one of those people who often wonders what to do with um, what you've called surplus data. And uh, sociology as a discipline uh, seems to have largely rejected autoethnography So as I read this book, I did wonder about how we tend to have a very knee-jerk distaste for not just the phrase, but uh, for the connotations of self-indulgence that the phrase carries with it. Um, So I was wondering how you would think about autoethnography and its potential to actually offer us a way to think about the world through our bodies, through our boundaries and our biographies. And uh, what if one ironically finds uh, fieldwork icky, but the idea of writing about themselves even more icky. (laughs) I love this question. Yeah. (laughs) um, You know, and because I think it really resonates with, uh, with our process of kind of thinking through these, uh, these issues, 
you know, I think that there were moments when Becca and I were were writing that we were like, ooh, but is this a, is this autoethnography? Is this what we're saying? <laughs> and I mean, I think that there are aspects of our critique that have some commonalities with some autoethnographic approaches. And of course, there's a range there too, right? Um, and I think maybe the difference is somewhat subtle. We aren't really interested in starting with or centering the researcher's experience um, as a way to reflect on broader social interactions or phenomena. Um, but we are what we are interested in is being attentive to these moments and these specific embodied experiences and what they can tell us about the social world, worlds we're observing. Um, you know, arguing that they can reveal important insights about power dynamics and social structures. So we're maybe like, I guess the difference is, is sort of subtle, you know, we're not, we're not starting with the researcher, we're still starting with, uh, with a research question about a given social context. Um, but we're arguing that we still have to be attentive, that it's necessary and important, an important source of data to be, to be attentive to these embodied experiences while in the field. Um, you know, when we leave them out, when we leave out these icky or uncomfortable or threatening elements, um, when we exclude them from our work, you know, we might limit our readers' um, information about our process and evidence and findings. But perhaps, you know, at least equally importantly, we also contribute to those narratives about what good research is, uh, you know, that it's disembodied and, and um and those are the narratives that end up silencing women and people of color and other minoritized people um, in in the academy. And so I think that you know the call to the call for um, our, our call for embodied research is about yes, about like doing. We argue that it's better research to include these elements, but I think like it's also really important to do it in order to not contribute to these silencing narratives. Um, but at the same time, I also, you know, have talked to a lot of um, students about the, uh, you know, as Becca was referring to earlier about, you know, like, how is this going to be received? And I think because we are still operating within a discipline and within an academy that uh, very well may look at um, the admission of these experiences as evidence of faulty uh, research or research that's lesser or that's polluted somehow. And these are the sorts of concerns that our participants talked about when they talked about why they didn't um, tell people about their experiences in the field. And yeah, in I, addition, I, oh, go ahead. No, I was just, I mean, I think it, I, I really, I think it's interesting that the way you phrase this question is really wonderful um, in terms of thinking it, but just given what Patricia was saying, right, this idea of our bodies being icky, I think can be related to like this idea of, of our bodies polluting our research, right? Um, and this just reproduce. So I think it's important to kind of step back and ask um, why we feel, you know, icky about writing about ourselves uh, apart, I mean, due to things like autoethnography, but also because this is, um, you know, this is a form of reproducing shame around, uh, you know, around the body. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, I do want to add, though, that, you know, at the same time, some embodied experiences in the field are really, are really traumatic or traumatizing. And, and it's a researcher's right to decide what they want to reveal. So I think, like, it's important to point out that we aren't arguing that everybody always, like, if something happened to them in the field, they always necessarily have to have to reveal that in their writing. Instead, you know, when I've talked to grad students about this, I ask them to consider, um, you know, including these these awkward um, experiences when when those experiences actually alter their understandings of their field site and data in some way, um, recognizing that they still are have the ultimate right to decide what they reveal or not reveal. But in addition, I think that our call for sort of an embodied approach goes beyond just what ends up on the written page. Um, and it's such that it's important to think about how these experiences affect us in our research at all steps of the process. You know, what questions do we end up pursuing? What opportunities do we take advantage of? What uh, field sites do we cut off? Um, and who do we trust in the field? So I think like thinking about these things at all steps, um, you know, and acknowledging the way these uncomfortable um, or threatening embodied experiences or even like joyful or positive embodied experiences um, um, speak to or what they reveal about our data really leads to a more complex ethnography um, and a richer telling of the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love this uh, idea of writing more about joy and pleasure. Yeah, um, yeah of sensuous pleasure as well, mm-hmm. and and not just always uh, sexual in nature, right? Like of other kinds of pleasures that are embodied. Um, to write about that, it would be a joy to read more of that. Yeah, uh, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agree. <laughs> we're, we're not just researchers; we're also readers. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, just. Thinking more about the kinds of changes that we need, I guess, not just in terms of writing, but in terms of um, institutions, I was uh, wondering if you wanted to say a little bit about uh, how you, like, what kinds of changes do you imagine uh, we need in our discipline and in the academic structure, I guess, uh, to get to a place where there is inclusivity when we think about method, data, and knowledge. Um, I know that Anthro, for instance, has uh, made some strides in this regard. And I just feel like maybe it's the fact that sociology has multiple methods in a discipline and we are such a splintered discipline in that sense. Uh, for instance, I just keep uh, I keep uh, very resentfully joking with my friends that the people who really need to read this book aren't actually going to read it. Like, you know, some of my friends who are, who are cis white men doing qualitative work who have mm-hmm. never even thought about um, mm-hmm. body and its place in research, right? And uh, I just want to make them read this book, but I also realize that we are maybe a far, uh, we may be still far away from that uh, possibility. So I was wondering what kinds of changes would you imagine and recommend, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, um, I think, a fear that we have had all along what you're talking (laughs) about, right? Specifically because we we were on a panel at a conference um, where a man asked us uh, if only women should read this book or what, you know, what was the purpose of men reading the book? Um, and I think that that really, it just, it's uh, tragic for a number of, of reasons, but one of which is that it actually, you know, it's beneficial as the, as we argue in the book, it's been beneficial for all researchers to think in this way, right? Because uh, men's 
um, experiences in the field are structured by hegemonic masculinity that they fall short of, right? Uh, and they're caught in contradictions um, about how to try and meet those standards and meet those expectations and in order to be able to get good data and things like that, right? So I think um, the for numerous reasons, but if nothing else, um, because all researchers are kind of caught up, I think, in this uh, contradiction in different ways. I think it hopefully will, yeah, we'll reach some of the, <laughs> those readers. Um, so, yeah, the uh, I think that the changes, um, as you're saying, you know, we, I think in sociology, you know, we tend to talk a lot about problems. It's hard, it's a lot harder to think about solutions, of course, and this was definitely something that we struggled with, uh, not only because it's hard to come up with solutions, but also because there is, you know, plenty of work showing how um, changes that have been uh, uh, put into place at the institutional level only end up, you know, reproducing um, inequalities and sexual harassment and things like that, right? I'm, but Patricia, you might remember the name of the author. I'm, I'm like, I think it's Stephanie Bowen or Bond who write, has a really fantastic article on um, the reproduction of sexual harassment in the military through bureaucratic um, measures. So we were very um, at first hesitant to think about uh, uh, concrete strategies for change, I think, um, for that for that reason, right? But so in the book, we do the way that we work through this is to think about strategies um, at different levels. And um, as Patricia was talking about before, and um, as I progress in my um, uh, academic career, uh, thinking about how to change, um, you know, the way that mentors approach these issues um, and how students can talk about them. Uh, it's something that we spend a lot of time on kind of, uh, I think, encouraging um, mentors to open up spaces for students to be able to talk about these things and uh, encouraging students to look to, to find, as Patricia, Patricia was mentioning before, um, to really build their own networks and find their own spaces as well, because um, yes, we're not going to change academia um, overnight, right? So it uh, uh, might not be the case that you will uh, receive the support that you need from your mentor, right? But there are other places that we can go about looking for that, right? Um, as a discipline, we talk a lot about um, being able to value uneven integration um, into our research sites as data. Uh, and so what we, you know, we mean by that is not thinking about moving past or moving beyond these um, uh, things that seem to, that, you know, that separate us from the people that we're working with or something that are seen or produce awkward interactions, right? Um, but understanding that those are going to continue throughout your field work um, and then considering how that influences who gains access where and the ease or difficulty with which um, they do tells us about social relations in our site, right? So thinking about um, some uh, different ways in which we can we can evaluate research, I think, is very important. Um, and of course, this uh, has a lot to do with the gatekeepers in our field, right? And by, gate, gate, by gatekeepers, we're, we're talking about um, you know, journal editors uh, or um, people who are reading grant applications or even uh, book reviewers, right? So um, as a basic first step towards institutional change, we, of course, need these really sustained efforts of diversifying our grad programs and departments um, and the dis- these disciplinary gatekeepers of all sorts to, to try and decenter the white, cis, straight, androcentric perspective that you know, we, we talk about in the book, um, but as we, as we also mentioned, representation, of course, and this, these efforts um, aren't really sufficient, as we, I think, probably all know, aren't really sufficient to change academic culture. And so then we, that, that brings us to thinking or talking about the importance of, of collective reflexivity 
Uh, and reflexivity tends to oftentimes be talked about as a very individual practice, um, but we think it's important to really consider how this can operate at the disciplinary level, right? Um, that uh, as, an, as a discipline, uh, you know, as sociologists, um, we really need to ask ourselves, what do we value explicitly or implicitly as a discipline and whose voices and perspectives are affirmed by how we teach methods and review manuscripts and mentor students, right? Just, I think I, this book is start hopefully contributing to starting that conversation, right? But there's a lot, uh, um, there's much further to, to go, right? Um, and then I think one of the, the comments that we received from a colleague uh, while we were working on this chapter is, is one, maybe one of the best um, uh, solutions or, or, well, maybe not solutions, but um, moves towards change is that basically feminist anti-racists need to take over the means of ethnographic production. <laughs> so, it's hard, it's hard to put it more succinctly. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, finally, since this is a book about methods and methodology, um, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about how you went about collecting data for this book, um, how your own uh, gender, sexuality, race shaped the data you received and the way you analyzed it. And finally, and I'm, I'm most curious about this, the pleasures and um, uh, strategies of co-authoring a monograph. Yeah. Yeah. This is such a nice question to kind of sum up with. I think, um, you know, our process, as I, as I began to talk about earlier, we initially thought, oh, we'll just like write a reflection piece. And then we thought, well, no, let's do just a few interviews. And, um, and that few interviews, uh, those first few interviews that we did, we were kind of like, oh, this is a much bigger project. I mean, first of all, you know, we did, I think, 56 interviews. We could have done double that based on the response uh, that we got to our, to our call for participants. Um, and the reason, you know, one of the ways in which we really, we really saw it kind of exploding was uh, that it became immediately clear, even, you know, and it was something that even when we kind of designed our sampling, it was already in the back of our mind, but it became exceptionally clear right away that these aren't, you know, gender never stands alone. We know this as intersectional scholars, um, but, you know, it was really, really clear to us that we needed to do our very best to, um, to make sure, you know, as um, more, you know, to put it in very sociological lingo, to oversample um, among women of color. But then we also were like, well, we also want to have some men in the sample because that was going to serve help us, we felt, test some of our theoretical ideas and also to really show the ways in which, as we argue, you know, everyone's research is embodied. These are questions that everybody needs to be thinking about. And so the project just kind of grew and grew in, in that regard. Um, and let's see, in terms of the writing, uh, you know, it was such a pleasure to write this book together. I, I think... Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I say that I'm like, you know, coming from, I guess, the position of relative power as at the time when we started it, you know, I was a member <laughs> of, I was a member of uh, Becca's committee. Um, but it was, you know, first of all, I mean, when Becca came to me, I was like, I was like, oh, my God, why did we not have this conversation? You know, when we were meeting, when she defended her perspectives, I can't believe it didn't come up. And so, like, the project itself has changed the way I 
mentor students. And it's also changed the way, you know, I don't think I was teaching methods at the time that, or at least I wasn't teaching, um, I was teaching feminist methods in women's studies, but I wasn't teaching qualitative methods in sociology, but now I am. And, you know, this has become a core component to the way that I teach. And that's all because of the sort of collaborative and, um, you know, the like sort of truly co-authored and co-thought nature of this project with Becca. It's, um, you know, it just has been a true pleasure, such as like Becca and I both joke that we never want to go back to writing books alone again. (laughs) (laughs) We just want to do this forever. Right. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, especially, I mean, since I'm, I am working on my own, like, uh, manuscript right now, I keep just, like, daydreaming back to the, the days of writing with Patricia. <laughs> it's so much more pleasurable. <laughs> um, yeah, so I thought that was, I absolutely share that, that feeling. Um, and I think, I, well, of course, I, when you're, you know, in the midst of writing a book, it's so, it's of course, so much more difficult than when you're re- reflecting on it. But I do continue to think as I'm writing this book, like, what's the big deal with you know the one authored manuscript <laughs> the, you know the one um or the, the you know the solitary ethnographer it's so much more <laughs> pleasurable to do these things in a collective manner but right. that's probably a different conversation um so yeah I mean I would just say that I think for me because you know we as Patricia mentioned you know we were in very different stages of our career when we started this project I was just coming out of the field um and I think it was way too uh emotionally damaged to even start on my own, start on like analyzing my data for my dissertation research, right? And then we started on this project and it was just um, incredibly uh, cathartic and healing for me, I think, particularly because um, sexual harassment and issues of, of, of challenges you face in the field based off, off of your body, right, tend to be so incredibly individualized. Um, like I said at the beginning of the interview, I just one of the reasons I didn't want to talk about this to anyone was because I was just kept thinking like, certainly someone else could do this better than me, right? Like there's something that I'm doing wrong that if I was just a better ethnographer, that this wouldn't be happening to me. So just being able to have a collective discussion with women um, about um, them going through the same things and thinking the same things was just really um, a really wonderful experience actually, which is a weird thing to say. Like we were you know, interviewing women about sexual harassment, but it ended up being a really wonderful experience. And I think even very empowering for me at the time. Um, so, uh, and I think that we, we both approached writing the, the book, I think from a, um, as a feminist of a perspective, uh, as, as possible. And I think that that definitely influenced, um, how collaborative and, and pleasant the writing process mm-hmm. was. So, um, in terms of how our own gender, sexuality and race shaped the data, I think that, it, um, you know, if we believe what we say in the book, <laughs> all right, it um, absolutely did. I, I think probably the fi- a lot of these the findings would be the same, right? But uh, perhaps someone um, who is very is different from you know from us. I mean, it's it's hard to think about a man doing this research, which is not to say that they wouldn't be able to do this research, but I think it would be, it would look very different, right? And might be more difficult in terms of access, um, you know, which is something that we talk about in the book. And is I think it's important to highlight that being a woman isn't all, isn't always, you know, struggles and challenges and all negative in terms of, of research, right? There are lots of avenues that are opened up and a lot of access that women have that men do not have. So I think that that's important um, to keep in mind. So I think it would would have looked very different for a man, but um, perhaps, and I hope that uh, this is um, 
a kind of a research question or topic that uh, people move forward with, because I do think that there could be some very interesting um, uh, projects built on top of this where people really get into a a more nuanced uh, understanding of what the trans experience is uh, doing research, right? Um, And I think one of the things we would like to do moving forward is is, is to think about um, another project that might look something uh, like that, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, as somebody who's writing, uh, finishing up um, her dissertation, your book has been really helpful in shaping my methodological appendix, but also just like being a much more empowered and, you know, sure about uh, talking about my own positionality and um, the sexualization of a lot of my, a lot of the interactions and how that shaped my research. So, I mean, I couldn't have read it at a better time, honestly. That's an amazing compliment. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so happy to hear that, and I, you know, it's why we wrote the book. Mm-hmm. You know, we really want it. We were really hoping it would be understood as a resource for people. Yeah, I mean, I, I can attest to that. Um, well, this was such a lovely conversation, and before I let you go, I would love to know what you're both working on now, and I guess uh, what can we expect to see either individually or uh, collectively in the near future. Um, well, so one of the things that Beck and I are thinking about together that um, actually um, it came up when we were presenting, the the idea sort of came out of something that Randall Contreras said when we were, we were talking about the book and he was commenting on it uh, at an event at the University of Florida. And, and you know, he was talking about wanting more examples about of what embodied uh, writing would look like. And so one of the things that we're toying with is doing an edited volume where we ask different people to do sort of versions of what um, what Becca did just with that short vignette at the end of the chapter where she like presented her original way of writing it and then made it more embodied. Um, and so our thought is to invite several, you know, different authors coming from, you know, different um, subject positions and different contexts of research to kind of write um, contributions or to, to write a contribution that does just that and kind of contrasting, you know, and so to begin to really think about like different ways in which we might, we might write embodied um, ethnography and how that might look different depending on who you are and uh, where the context in which you're doing research. So that's one thing that we're thinking about. Um, And I have an ongoing project with a colleague, Mirai Panemal in, um, in Walmapu, which is the uh, Mapuche word for Southern Chile, in which we are looking at women elders' lived experiences as sort of a resource for theorizing uh, decolonization. Yeah, I think that um, uh, this is this project, um, because there were so many things that we wanted to do with it and weren't able to, as Patricia said, that so many more interviews that we would have liked to have done, I think will is something that will continue to uh, think about and build on for hopefully for um, a long time since it was such a wonderful process working on it. Um, so, and then I hopefully we'll see how, how successful it is, but hopefully my, um, the, my book on policing in Venezuela will provide a example of how to, mm-hmm. how to write the, in this way that we're advocating for um, fingers crossed that, that I, I achieved that successfully. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to read both these uh, uh, books in the pipeline. They all the projects sound absolutely fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I had such a lovely conversation. And I wish you all the luck in your uh, projects oh. and endeavors. Well, the same to you, and thank you so much for the invitation. It was a true pleasure to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you, and and um, uh, lots of of support in finishing up your your dissertation. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> much appreciated. <laughs> all right, take care. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you.